Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. Amos Harel, the veteran military correspondent for Haaretz and a friend of this podcast, is back with us today to break down the worst round of hostilities in and from Gaza since May of 2021. Amos did a terrific job, as always, explaining what just happened, why it happened, and what it may mean going forward. But first, I think it's important to stress that the past year in Gaza was the quietest in years, some say over two decades. After the 11-day war between Israel and Hamas in May 2021, things did change. The Bennett Lapid government embarked on an expansive economic and civil program for Gaza, and Hamas reciprocated by keeping things quiet. If there was one silver lining, it was just that. Hamas thankfully stayed out of the fray this past weekend. In other words, this was a battle between Israel and Islamic Jihad, not between Israel and Gaza. The second point context. The proximate cause for this latest round was the arrest of a senior Islamic Jihad commander in the northern West Bank early last week. Islamic Jihad then vowed some kind of retaliation, likely in the form of a sniper or anti-tank missile attack from Gaza into southern Israel. Israel put its Gaza border communities on high alert for over three days, with roads closed, train travel stopped, and public gatherings canceled. I've been doing this for a long time, and I can't remember such an alert going on for that long. Israelis started howling, and with some reason. How is it that a terror group shuts down a chunk of the country without firing a single shot? By Friday, with the high alert still in place, the Lapid government finally lost patience and ordered what it said were preemptive strikes into Gaza, which then led to Islamic Jihad rocket fire into Israel and the three days of escalation, etc., Third point, Israel won this round. It's not always the case with these Gaza campaigns. Some would say it's never the case with these murky and inconclusive Gaza campaigns. But this time around, Israel did major damage to Islamic Jihad, killing most of the group's senior field commanders and degrading a lot of its military assets. And on the flip side, Islamic Jihad fired nearly a thousand rockets and mortars into Israel. And not only were there no real casualties or injuries on the Israeli side, but there were barely any actual impacts on the ground, thanks to the Iron Dome system, which, by the way, is only getting better, as I found out over the weekend from personal experience. Fourth and final point, nothing has arguably changed after this round. Life in southern Israel and Gaza has quickly returned back to normal, just days after the ceasefire went into effect, and Israel, after a symbolic pause, I'm sure, will soon reopen all of Gaza's border crossings and go back to its pre-war policy, as will Hamas. That's the good news. The bad news is just that. Nothing has changed. These new, shall we call them, understandings between Israel and Hamas over Gaza are definitely more positive than what's gone on in the past. And yet, an escalation did take place, and violence did erupt, which means that the next round is likely, and sadly, not a matter of if, but rather when. Let's get to Amos Harel. Hi, Amos. Welcome back to the Israel Policy Pod. Hi, Neri. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's our pleasure. I'm sure it's been a, a busy few days on your end, uh, obviously with the renewed fighting uh, over the weekend in and from Gaza. Uh, I think it's fair to say that in your time, you've covered an endless number of these escalations, operations, campaigns, rounds, uh, whatever term of art people want to use. So I wanted to start here. 
with your assessment of this particular round, especially in terms of the tactics and operations from both sides. Uh, it seemed to me, at least, that Israel actually did quite well over the three-day conflict and that Palestinian Islamic Jihad did rather less well over this round. Uh, what do you think? All things considered, you're right, of course, but we, we should factor into this equation that the very um, clear gap uh, in quality of, between those uh, two sides, when you talk of uh, military capabilities, um, in the end, the IDF is the, probably the strongest military organization in the region. Islamic Jihad is much smaller and much weaker than tougher Israeli opponents, such as uh, Hamas, not to mention uh, Hezbollah. So yes, Israel managed to limit this confrontation to three days only, which was a good thing um, from an Israeli perspective. It prevented the Islamic Jihad from reaching any kind of uh, major military achievement or causing much harm. No Israelis um, have died uh, during this round of uh, violence. And Islamic Jihad failed as well, both in trying to drag Hamas, uh, which is, of course, the uh, ruling uh, body in uh, Gaza. Uh, they failed to drag them into the violence, and they also failed to um, um, ignite anything else in other um, areas in the region, such as the West Bank or uh, southern Lebanon. Uh, Hassan Nasrallah sent his sympathies, but he didn't lift uh, a finger uh, to help his uh, brothers in Gaza during uh, this round of uh, fighting. So, you know, uh, when, when you look at this uh, this way, yes, Israel has won. But is this um, a knockout victory? Will this mean anything important in three months' time uh, come Israeli elections or in uh, a year or two? We, will we remember this round as something different than any other round? I, I doubt it. I beg to differ. I think that in the end, um, this would be remembered as one more round in an endless uh, battle between Israel and the Palestinian organizations in Gaza. In Gaza. And perhaps I'd um, uh, recommend avoiding all those uh, celebrations of victory that you can hear uh, both around Lapid and Gantz and um, in some circles in, uh, in the army. Yes, after every Gaza round, uh, the government officials and military officers on the Israeli side say this was the heaviest blow inflicted on the, the militant groups and that, you know, It'll buy a long period of quiet, and usually that's not the case. Um, well, remember, um, last year there was a round of uh, violence in Operation Guardian of the Walls. The, the names, by the way, are not getting better. Um, mm -hmm. But that uh, took place for about eight or nine days. And later on, one of the senior officers in the IDF said that it would mean five, he would hope that this would mean five uh, years of calm in Gaza. Apparently, he was wrong about that. It only took a year and uh, three months until uh, things escalated again. I think this round, as I said, was performed better from the Israeli perspective uh, than the previous one. But then again, I don't think that this is very important uh, in, in, in the long term. Right. Uh, so we'll get into the broader context in just a little bit. I wanted to stay on the, shall we say, operational side. I think the real champions, if you want to call it that, on the Israeli side this time around was, number one, the intelligence 
arms, the Shin Bet and military intelligence that were able to to pinpoint and locate a lot of the senior Islamic Jihad commanders inside Gaza. Uh, pretty remarkable, you know, finding them uh, in in apartments and safe houses. Uh, I think the Iron Dome did really, really well. Ninety six or ninety seven percent interception rates, the highest ever. Uh, and also, I think it's important to say Israel's overall strategic communications uh, system, whether in the IDF or various government branches like the prime minister's office, I think they all together uh, worked much better than, than I've ever seen them. Is that a fair assessment on your end in terms of these three, let's say, points to highlight coming out of the weekend? Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Um, but I, I think the one thing is in common for both the technology and the air power, and especially the military intelligence and Shin Bet intelligence that you mentioned. Uh, these are all sources of well-known Israeli uh, power. And Israel did not have to um, involve this time um, other units, which are perhaps... Um, less um, adept at uh, dealing with such situations. Uh, uh, we didn't have, um, we didn't call in the reserves. Uh, there were no uh, units of um, infantry or tanks that needed to go into Gaza and deal with this uh, on the ground or anything like that. Israel stuck to the places where it um, felt stronger. And as I mentioned, the opponent, uh, you know, it wasn't an A-level opponent. Uh, you mentioned the fact that um, the IDF and Shabak uh, could identify those uh, uh, apartments uh, where uh, some of those uh, militant leaders uh, were hiding. This means in the end that they were less uh, disciplined than their colleagues in Hamas, who managed in most cases to avoid uh, similar assassination attempts in the previous rounds. The same goes for the rockets. Uh, Iron Dome, of course, is it, it does magic. And it's amazing to see how from uh, round to round, actually, the, the level of um, professionalism just uh, grows. And the number, you know, the, the percentage of intercepting uh, is, is higher than before. They began with 85% in uh, 2012. By now, it's somewhere between 96 to 97%, as you mentioned. Having said that, Islamic Jihad, was not capable, at least at uh, this round, of launching barrages of dozens of rockets at the same time to a certain town. This is something that Hamas did in the past. And, and as we know, when Hamas shot 30 or 40 or 50 rockets towards one Israeli town um, in the past, it turned out that one or two or three of those uh, rockets got away and caused damage. This wasn't the case with uh, Islamic Jihad, because as I said, uh, Islamic Jihad was less capable, whether it's because of logistical problems or technological problems, or whether it's because its uh, chain of command was hurt so badly uh, pretty quickly once the uh, violence started. Right. Uh, fair points. This is why we love to have you on, Amos. You're, you're a nice reality check to, uh, to you know, <laughs> to, the, to the conventional wisdom. Uh, and we should say too that the the Israeli military also admitted that Islamic Jihad's rocket arsenal, uh, as one officer put it to me, uh, low quality weapons and low quality operatives. So it's not exactly Hamas, which exactly. which is true. Um, big picture, Amos, Israel's overall Gaza strategy, uh, which we have to talk about. I think uh, you know you've written about it. I've written about it. Uh, I think we can best describe it as 
economy for quiet, right? Uh, I.e. Israel provides more economic and civilian benefits to Gaza in return for Hamas in particular, uh, maintaining the calm, not firing rockets, and basically keeping a lid on the smaller militant groups inside the Strip. Um, on the one hand, I think Israeli officials say the strategy worked this time. Hamas stayed out of it. On the other hand, Hamas was either unable or unwilling to keep Islamic Jihad from escalating. So what do you think of of this overall Israeli strategy? It's not new, by the way. It dates back to Netanyahu. But I think Bennett and Lapid took it a step further, right, over the past year. Uh, and it still didn't quite work. I, I think you described it very accurately. Um, Netanyahu, unlike his um, image abroad, um, was actually quite weary of confronting Hamas or searching for new adventures in the Gaza Strip. And what you saw time after time was that he actually preferred negotiations to fighting, and he never went all the way in order to move for a regime change. The, the rhetoric was there, whether he was on a, in, in the opposition or later on as prime minister, but he was always very, very cautious not to get himself too entangled in uh, an endless war in Gaza. And although he, you know, he's trying to... Um, uh, reshape history by telling us how much he was against uh, Sharon's disengagement plan. Uh, in the end, he's not keen on um, reoccupying Gaza and uh, returning uh, Israeli uh, control uh, uh, of the Strip. Um, Bennett and Lapid, and especially Bennett, took this um, attitude one step forward because after Guardian of the Walls, Guardian of the Walls was uh, May. 2021, and a month later, Bennett managed to form a government with Lapid. And Bennett, being a more adventurous uh, person uh, than Netanyahu and more willing to take risks, believed that he could uh, go uh, one or two steps further by providing Hamas more um, economic uh, steps, um, more gestures, if you'd like, hoping in return to get uh, calm on the border. And he, he seems to be right um, up to a point because up to July, between May of last year and July of this year, this was actually probably the calmest year since this engagement in 2005 on the Gaza border. Communities were having a great time. More and more people were buying apartments in the kibbutzim and in near Gaza Strip and, and in towns like Stirot and Ashkelon. And life, at least on the Israeli side, seemed better. Inside Gaza, Hamas was using um, the Israeli decisions to get um, more stuff in um, to rebuild some of uh, uh, the buildings that were uh, damaged during the latest operations to try and improve uh, the infrastructure. And also for the first time, Israel was willing, for the first time since disengagement in 2005, Israel was willing to make important steps in order to allow um, Palestinian workers to enter Israel. 14,000 uh, Gaza workers um, um, were allowed to enter uh, last week. And the, the government announced that it was uh, uh, willing to continue the project since it succeeded in its eyes and, and raise the number up to 20,000 and perhaps 30,000. Now, this is extremely important for Gaza because the average wage often a uh, uh, Palestinian worker in Israel is somewhere around 300 shekels um, a day. This doesn't seem um, a lot to most of your uh, listeners in America, but we should know that this is five times the average salary, uh, daily salary of a worker in Gaza. So this is extremely important. 
And the whole concept was, okay, we will give them uh, goods, we will give them um, uh, stuff that they need uh, for uh, for their infrastructure, we will permit the workers to come and work uh, for us, and in return, we'll get calm. Now, um, this concept more or less collapsed last week because Islamic Jihad announced its intentions to um, launch some kind of an attack towards Israel. And once the, the Hamas uh, leaders were contacted through the Egyptians, they said, well, we're very sorry, but we can't help you on this. Uh, we're not aside to this issue. You will have to deal with this on your own. Now, once the fighting uh, was over, Israel said, the Israeli leadership is saying, okay, Hamas uh, uh, stood out of the way. It didn't um, involve itself in any way in launching rockets uh, in Israel, towards Israel, and therefore we shouldn't punish them. And we should um, announce not only do we reset the situation by allowing workers to to enter, and this has already happened uh, on Tuesday, but we should announce more gestures, more economic gestures uh, towards Hamas. In a, in a sense, we're rewarding Hamas for not shooting rockets at us. But is this a glass actually half empty or half full? The, the other side uh, of this uh, picture that I'm painting one could claim Hamas actually failed. Uh, the whole deal, as you said, was econ um, economic um, gestures in return for absolute calm, and Hamas failed. It didn't do anything to prevent the Islamic Jihad from uh, shooting rockets. So why should Hamas um, be enjoying uh, um, anything uh, right now? But Lapid and Bennett and the army and Shin Bet as well. The Shin Bet is the interesting uh, part of this equation because it's traditionally it's more conservative regarding any kind of security risk, all of those people, and I've talked to most of them and asked them about their opinions, are quite um, convinced that we should move ahead and that we should do more, uh, we should decide on more gestures towards the Palestinians, that, that we should lift some more sanctions and allow life in Gaza to improve. Now, I'm all for it, and I think that life in Gaza should be a lot better, and I think that the basis of a lot of this conflict has to do with the unbearable living conditions in the Strip. But I think that we shouldn't lie to ourselves about Hamas's role in everything that happened. And my fear is that within a year or two, we will come to regret this and we will ask ourselves, how did we mislead ourselves uh, regarding um, what Hamas was actually doing? Yeah, uh, I think that's that's a risk that I suppose the Israeli side and the Israeli authorities and the government are willing to take because there's no other viable or good options. You can't, like you said, go in and retake the strip. Uh, as, as one officer put it, the, the prize for taking over Gaza is Gaza. Uh, and nobody quite, quite wants that prize. Uh, and on the other hand, you can't, um, you can't let Gaza fall into the ocean and leave it uh, in terms of its economy and humanitarian conditions uh, getting worse and worse because over 2 million people live there. Uh, and that will only lead, like we've seen for over a decade, to Hamas escalating uh, into multiple rounds with Israel to get to precisely get those economic benefits from Israel. Uh, so I think it's not a surprise to me, at least, that the Israeli government is uh, is very is very positive towards this policy because I don't know what the other alternative is in their minds. Amos, on the point that you raised, the relationship between Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, 
you hear all kinds of different analyses and nuances. One time, Hamas and Islamic Jihad are adversaries, and Hamas is very happy that Islamic Jihad gets hammered by the IDF. At other times, they fight shoulder to shoulder, uh, like last May, May 2021, they they were fighting uh, against Israel together. How do you personally view the relationship between Hamas and Islamic Jihad? Well, if I can summarize this in one sentence, welcome to the Middle <laughs> East. Uh, the Palestinian map, political map, is not very different than the Israeli ones, uh, than the Israeli one. Um, how about uh, Lapid's relationship uh, with Gantz? Is it always rosy or is it sometimes that they fight each other and uh, would like each other to, to fail? Fair point. With Hamas and Islamic Jihad, in the end, Hamas is the bigger, stronger entity, political and military entity in the Gaza Strip. Hamas has ruled the Strip since its um, violent revolution of uh, 2007, a year, two years after the disengagement when it uh, practically threw Fatah out. And since then, Hamas has been in constant conflict, internal conflict, between the whole ideological idea of mukawama, of uh, uh, armed resistance towards Israel. This is something, this is the, the main principle it was formed around in uh, December 1987, and the necessities of the everyday life governing of Gaza its responsibility to more than 2 million people who live, as I said, under the worst uh, circumstances. And also its need to maintain its control in the end um, as an Islamic um, body, as an Islamic party. This is one of the greatest achievements for such an organization in the Middle East, much before their uh, uh, mother uh, movement, if you like, the Islamic uh, Brotherhood of Egypt gained control for a year or two in Egypt, after the Arab Spring, Hamas was actually in control of an area, in a total control of the area, not that it was ever elected uh, democratically to, to rule the Gaza Strip. And this is something that you don't want to lose. If you, by mistake, um, um, challenge Israel to a fight and end up losing everything, then this is a huge loss to the whole idea of the Muslim Brotherhood um, everywhere. So this is the, the terrain they've been negotiating quite successfully uh, for a long time. And now Islamic Jihad always challenges them. Uh, there are points in which Hamas restrains uh, the Islamic Jihad. Sometimes they even arrest militants or torture them or uh, um, threaten them in order for them to stop launching rockets at Israel, for example, because this is not the right time in the eyes of uh, Hamas's leadership. In other times when things are escalating, Hamas decides for its reasons to, to join the fight. Usually this is about the, the Mukawama, maintaining uh, some idea of Mukawama while um, uh, continuing to, to control the Strip and trying to avoid an, um, a full-scale uh, uh, confrontation with Israel, which would end in disaster. And, and this is uh, how they uh, operate for a very long time. So when things escalate on the military level and they have to fight Israel, then they coordinate with Islamic Jihad and there's no problem. Uh, when they feel that this is the right time to stop or restrain, um, you know, they have no doubts about that and, and, and they can turn very violent towards the brothers in, in the Islamic Jihad. This is more or less the relationship. This time, and not for the first time, it happened in November 19 and also in February uh, 2020, Hamas decides 
to stay on the sidelines, and it actually watches as Israel destroys um, jihad's military capabilities. And I'm not sure I, if somebody interviewed Dichir Sanwar, the, 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 the domestic leader of Hamas in Gaza, I'm not sure that it actually, that if he spoke uh, truthfully, uh, he would have, um, um, you know, he would have been very sad. Shed a, t- shed a tear. Yeah, that re- that Israel uh, removed uh, some of uh, Islamic Jihad's uh, most prominent military leaders in the Strip. It's less of a headache for him. He would never say that publicly. But I think this is the reality of the matter. Very interesting. Uh, I think, to my mind, that's the most fascinating and, and unexplored facet of the whole Gaza issue is the relationship between Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Um, Amos, one word we haven't really touched on, and Israeli officials love it, is deterrence. Deterrence. Um, Even after this latest round, uh, we heard, especially Defense Minister Benny Gantz, get up and say that everybody from Khan Yunus to Tehran now needs to pay attention, that no one is safe. What do you think, as a demonstration of Israeli military and intelligence power, uh, what do you think its impact will be moving forward on, say, Islamic Jihad, on Hamas, even perhaps Hezbollah and Iran? Or is this wishful thinking or overstating things? Look, uh, Neri, I think that the the truth is always is somewhere in the middle. And we should avoid these uh, enormous PR mechanisms that are working right now in order to succeed domestically. I don't think it really interests the European community right now, or um, a, a lot of people in the U.S. apart from our listeners, um, people are, you know, the international community is more busy with Taiwan and China and uh, Russia and Ukraine, of course, than actually paying attention to what is going on here. And we have to remember that the political level, and by that I mean both uh, the actual politicians and the IDF's top brass are invested in this. Uh, They have an image uh, to keep and they have to convince the the home crowd, so to speak, that they were successful and that they maintain our um, military, um, um, what do you call it, Uh, our our military edge over the competition, because this is something very basic to the Israeli society, the Jews at large, uh, you know, maintaining uh, the safety of Israel. How do you do that? By keeping strong, by threatening your enemies and by deterring them from the the actual idea of um, of um, trying anything. You remember those um, uh, signs in New York, those uh, road signs in, in New York, don't even think of parking here. That's the same kind of thing. Um, so they're all invested in this idea. And every round, and as you've mentioned, I'm a veteran of these rounds, a lot of uh, there's a lot of investment, a lot of effort in order to persuade the public, mostly through the press, that this was in fact the, the the greatest achievement ever. As I said, this was quite a significant achievement when you compare that to the to the previous uh, competition, if you'd like, in 2021. But then again, not a not a final victory over anything. If I was um, a military analyst working, uh, God forbid, for either Hamas or Hezbollah then I'd keep note of what was going on. The fact that the Israelis uh, were very good at um, discovering where the enemy leaders were hiding, Uh, the fact that they could operate so many pinpoint attacks, the fact that uh, under these conditions, they almost, uh, they didn't avoid completely, but they were very successful 
at avoiding uh, deaths of civilians. Uh, this whole idea of a closed circle between uh, the Air Force and the Army Intelligence and Chimbet working hand in hand in order to react very, very quickly and achieve uh, an operational advantage. And of course, as you mentioned, Iron Dome, not uh, forgetting that in three years' time, Israel promises that it will also have the laser project as another layer of uh, defense in order to intercept rockets. So all this would be very important to note if you were an analyst in, sitting in Beirut or Gaza or uh, Damascus or Tehran. Uh, but then again, how could you compare that to a full-scale war with Hezbollah, perhaps with some help from the Revolutionary Guards in Iran, and ballistic mi missiles flowing all over the, uh, flying all over the place? This is, this is different. Um, so the IDF has improved. It wasn't tested in all those areas in which we have some doubts about its uh, actual uh, capabilities at, at the moment, meaning, as I said, the reserve units, uh, the ground forces at large, any kind of uh, ground um, maneuvers and so on, it wasn't needed this time. And, you know, the IDF shouldn't have thrown in soldiers inside Gaza just to test its uh, capabilities. This is not the idea. But we haven't learned much about um, everything else. I, I should I perhaps mention one more thing about the political level. I think it was better coordinated uh, with the military uh, people than before. I think there was less of an open battle of egos. Less of this was about uh, Gantz's ego or Lapid's ego, and especially Lapid, who isn't an expert on these matters and doesn't have a lot of military experience. It seems as if he was listening to the generals and he was quite cautious and restrained about the whole matter. And this is important because if you look back, some of those operations under Netanyahu, I think one of the reasons why they didn't end um, after a few days, as was usually the, the, the better option, uh, part of this was the endless search for um, uh, some kind of uh, photograph which would uh, mean victory, something that could be presented to the people of Israel as uh, an image that would show that we actually beat uh, the, the other side. Lapid was less anxious about that, and he allowed the army to push for a very quick ceasefire. In my mind, this is a very good thing. Right. Uh, and also we should mention he they successfully had that picture of victory or victory picture, however you want to call it, right from the start. Well, yeah. that's another issue that 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 oh, Bibi Netanyahu finally deigned to hold a security consultation with the Israeli Prime Minister, something that he had refused to do uh, over the past year with Naftali Bennett previously, mm -hmm. and then since Lapid took power. Uh, but but yes, in the middle of the campaign, uh, there was a I guess a small win for both Prime Minister Lapid and uh, the the notion of mamlachtiut or bipartisanship. Uh, in Israel, that the opposition. There's, there's one. There's one more point here. I think usually I, I, I used to say that in meetings with uh, visitors uh, from, especially from America, for many many years, until Bibi became the center of everything here. The, the whole debate became this toxic, uh, heated uh, argument about uh, about whether you you loved Bibi or not. Um, Israelis tended to vote over one issue and one issue only, which was the sense of personal security. Did you trust the, the person in command, the, the prime minister, 
to defend you on, on an everyday basis, to be cautious um, on military affairs, not to give in, not to make too many compromises with the Arabs, since in the common experience of the Israeli voters was that this usually got out of hand and failed. And on the other hand, not to search for unnecessary military adventures. Now, there was always a question mark about Lapid because of the fact that he was, you know, that he was, uh, as, as an 18-year-old, he served in the army newspaper. He was a journalist, a, a correspondent, and not a Sayeret Matkal commando fighter or anything like that. Nothing wrong with being a journalist. Yeah, but, uh, but the first, um, we, we can discuss that later, but, uh, but on his first test... Right, think, we, we know, we also yeah. know... We also know a lot of journalists too. That's that's a fair. Yeah, point. but I think the the first test, I wouldn't say that he passed this in flying colors, but he did rather well, and he, he showed common sense and he showed restraint, and he didn't, you know, he wasn't um, he didn't lose control of the situation, and this is important to him as he faces uh, the elections in November. Would people remember this whole affair come November? I don't know because you know the the news scale here changes so quickly. But at least he cannot be blamed. And you see that Likud has, has taken one step back and all the uh, Bibi supporters on, on the social networks, um, you know, took one step back because they cannot really blame Lapid for failing. Remember that last week when there was this whole debate about um, ordering the, the, the military telling the residents of the kibbutzim near Gaza to stay at home and stay off the roads and so on. Immediately, Yair Netanyahu and others attacked Lapid for being a coward and attacked the army for not taking the initiative. The whole image or the whole perception of the events changed once Israel uh, reacted with the surprise attack in which it uh, killed some of the uh, Islamic Jihad's uh, military leaders. So you could not uh, blame Lapid anymore for being soft on, on, on the Arab side. So this is, from his perspective, this is quite an achievement. Yes, the... BB and Likud supporters didn't quite know what to do with themselves uh, last last Friday. Exactly, this was this was fun. I have to admit that this was fun yes. watching the you know the the, uh, the fact that they had to um, rearrange uh, themselves, rearrange their opinions, and sometimes uh, reshape what they already said in order to get away from the argument because apparently they were losing it. Israel Policy Forum works to strengthen support for advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to preserve Israel's future as Jewish, democratic, and secure. We provide constructive policy analysis and pragmatic policy recommendations, produce credible research reports, deliver thoughtful and nuanced commentary, build engaging and innovative educational content, and create informational video content covering critical issues. We are trusted as a reliable resource in Washington and the Jewish community. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of the two-state solution, read the Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau's weekly article on current events, visit our YouTube channel for short explainer videos and our 120 Project Israeli election news updates, engage with our young professional network, IPF Atid, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. Subscribe to receive updates about all of this and more at israelpolicyforum.org slash subscribe. Um, Amos, final point with regard to the Gaza campaign of this past weekend, and you kind of touched on it in terms of the domestic politics and the alert in southern Israel in and around the Gaza border region for three or four days last week. There was 
a lot of talk, I think mostly from people outside of Israel, uh, about this being, say, a politically motivated campaign. Obviously, Israel is in the middle of an election campaign, and that uh, Lapid and maybe Defense Minister Gantz needed, uh, you know, a war, so to speak, in order to bolster their prospects ahead of November. Um, I tried to explain to people that a high alert that had thousands of Israelis under de facto lockdown, that they couldn't move around on the roads and no train travel and no public gatherings, um, isn't just the whim of a government, that it's not taken lightly. I personally couldn't remember that kind of high alert going on for so many days consecutively without actually being lifted or something happening. Um, so what do you think about the, the, the context or let's say what precipitated this latest round, the high alert in, in the South coming out of obviously the arrest of the Islamic Jihad leader in Janine in the beginning of last week? Look, it, it gets harder and harder to disprove um, conspiracy theories, which are very, very popular in the age of social media, and many times they you know, infiltrate into the, the mainstream media as well. And uh, you've touched on this. It's Once you're here, it's easier to understand it, but it's extremely hard to try to explain this and still gain the faith of, your, of, of the people, uh, of the trust of the people listening to you once they're outside of the country. It isn't done this way in Israel, usually. Um, Netanyahu sometimes flirted with military action because he was with his back against the wall, mostly regarding his political situation and the legal problems. So when you look back at Netanyahu in the last two years of his uh, uh, almost endless reign, um, you could see times in which political motives um, could be the explanation for some of his actions. If you go back to Olmert in 2006, his decision to enter the war and uh, la later on his last-ditch attempt of um, um, saving face and doing something by sending the troops in in the last 60 hours, a disastrous uh, um, moment in the Lebanon uh, war. In the last 60 hours, he attempted to send troops in in order to improve the IDF situation in southern Lebanon. All of this was affected by the pause and by his uh, uh, very uh, um, unstable political situation by then. But usually, in most cases, Israeli leaders, including Netanyahu, and contrary to what people may think about him outside of Israel, are very, very cautious about applying um, military uh, force. And this has to do with the law of unintended consequences and with this um, understanding or uh, belief, which is shared by most politicians, that you, things could go wrong very, very quickly when uh, you start applying military force. The enemy doesn't necessarily behave according to your expectations, especially because these are um, um, uh, wars in, uh, in which uh, there's no symmetry between our force and the other side. And usually things go bad. They don't go as you expected. This is why I don't think that Lapid or Gantz gambled on anything here. I think that they were, again, in a way, this is quite similar to what happened to Omar to Netanyahu um, in a, on a limited scale, more limited scale. They were with their backs against the walls because Islamic Jihad was about to act. There was a lot of criticism in the Israeli press and among the right-wingers because uh, they told people to stay home and we were actually shutting down a whole Israeli region because of uh, Islamic Jihad's uh, threats. And their solution was um, uh, to, to move forward. But this was not about um, 
Lapido Gantz thinking, okay, what we need right now is uh, some kind of picture that would show how brave we are, that which would present a victory to the Israeli people. And this is why uh, we're willing to risk a military adventure. This is not the way that things get done in Israel, not because Israeli politicians aren't as cynical as their uh, counterparts <laughs> in, in other parts of the world, but because they're very uh, well aware of the possible consequences. And Lapid is not different uh, on on this than uh, than his predecessors. Thank you for setting the record straight. Uh, Amos, I wanted to shift quickly to the West Bank, which we haven't really talked about, but I think uh, deserves more attention than it's gotten, well, especially since all the focus of recent days was on Gaza. Um, there's an ongoing, and I'd say pretty serious West Bank operation by the IDF, counter-terror operation, uh, geared primarily at the Northern West Bank, places like Nablus and Janine. Um, this IDF operation is now in its fifth month uh, since the spate of terror attacks, I think inside Israel beginning in late March. Um, this isn't an outlier anymore, is it? This is, to my mind, the biggest IDF operation in the West Bank since 2014, maybe even bigger than that one. Maybe we have to go back to the Second Intifada. This happens on a nightly basis. It just doesn't really get covered in the media unless there's a major firefight like yesterday morning in the Kasbah in Nablus. So, almost, do you think Israel is maybe overplaying its hand here in the West Bank and risking, say, future instability or even the viability of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank? I think that mostly reality is changing under our gaze, and and most of us are are uh, missing this, are not really paying attention because so many other things are happening in other parts of the world. Uh, the fact is, as you said, that things are less stable than before. A lot of this has to do with the domestic situation inside uh, the Palestinian Authority. Um, Mahmoud Abbas, the chairman, is 86 and a half years old. His health is not improving. He's, he's quite um, um, he's doing quite well for somebody his age, but it's it gets harder and harder to maintain control. And I think more and more people inside Fatah and inside Palestinian Authority are questioning his uh, ability to control the situation in the West Bank and are thinking of the day after. There's an open battle, open battle for his uh, succession. So this is um, a big issue that's getting missed by most people who talk about the West Bank. Other than that, you see the the usual case of dissatisfaction among Palestinian youth. Uh, People fed up with the corrupt regime of the PA on the one hand and with Israeli occupation on on the other hand. Uh, People are frustrated with uh, the fact that there's nothing waiting for them on their uh, personal horizon. And some of those um, armed militant groups that have been resting for quite some time, actually cooperating together, whether to um, maintain control of certain areas, the Kasbahs in the center of some of the older Palestinian towns or uh, refugee camps and so on, pushing the PA's uh, security forces outside, fighting uh, fire with fire, uh, shooting back at Israelis when once they come in, almost on a nightly basis, as you mentioned, uh, to make arrests. And sometimes some of these people working independently, in a few cases, um, having the support of their organization as well, 
attempt terrorist attacks inside Israel. We've seen a wave of these, as you've mentioned, between uh, March 20th and I think the, the end of May. There were 20 Israelis, at least, who were killed in those attacks. So what happened since is that, um, you know, there's an ongoing confrontation, ongoing uh, conflict almost every night. There's shooting and fighting going on, not many Israeli casualties. So the Israeli public is not paying much attention. But I think almost, I don't have the, the statistics, but I think that almost every uh, week you have somewhere between three to five uh, young people dying on the Palestinian side, some of them on militants, some of them uh, rock throwers, some of them innocents who were somehow um, um, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time. But there are many, many casualties on the Palestinian side, and this is getting a bigger issue. On the other hand, as I said, not only the public, but the media fails to concentrate on this. Look at the situation. Uh, we're talking Wednesday. On Wednesday, uh, yesterday, there was a big military operation in Nablus, a city in the northern West Bank. Um, Three um, Palestinians were killed. One of them, a wanted uh, militant who was armed. I think uh, with some of his uh, friends, he, you know, he was in an apartment that the IDF and the Israeli police uh, um, discovered. They attempted to arrest him. There was a shooting going on. He published uh, an audio statement in which he said that he was willing to die as a shahid, as a martyr. This is what happened, of course. But if you look at the front pages of some of the Israeli papers, mostly the tabloids, not Aretz, what you read about today is the death of Zili the dog, an attack dog used by the elite anti-terror unit of the police, which was killed by this uh, wanted militant during uh, the confrontation. So um, this is... This is the way things are going right now. I mean, this is the discussion, not about the um, um, conditions of the occupation, not about the chances of peace, not about the, the threats of another terror wave, but mostly about how brave uh, Zili the dog was. Lapid himself actually mentioned him in a statement uh, after the after the incident. So this is you know this is the kind of discussion we're having, and since this is the level of discussion, it's very very hard to focus on the actual meaning of these events and the operational need of the IDF to to keep doing this on a nightly basis. Do you think it's yeah, it's it's also connected to what happened in Gaza because as you mentioned, uh, the the spark that lit Gaza was an arrest of another uh, senior leader of Islamic Jihad in Jenin, again, Northern West Bank, last Monday night. Uh, his name is uh, Sheikh Bassam Saadi. You know, uh, on the outside, he looks like a politician. In reality, I think that the uh, IDF and Shin Bet have a point that, uh, claiming that he's involved in at least in financing terrorist activities. He's uh, 62 years old by now. I don't think he takes any uh, part himself in, in violence. But he was arrested, and there was a video out uh, of uh, uh, that showed him being dragged on the ground by uh, by policemen. There was also in, a dog in the picture, which was considered humiliating. And this was enough for Islamic Jihad to threaten Israel with retaliation in the Gaza Strip. So all of this is very, very delicate. My assumption is that Israel would insist on what they call uh, the military or operational uh, freedom, if you'd like in all of those uh, West Bank towns and uh, refugee camps, meaning that they would continue these operations, no matter what the Palestinians uh, say. 
but this, you know, the, the seeds of the next round of violence are actually here. It's very clear if you decide to pay attention to what's actually going on. Very good point. Uh, and I know you pay close attention to this. I pay close attention to this. Uh, Israel Policy Forum also pays very close attention to the Palestinian arena. Um, it's a shame that the Israeli public, uh, perhaps less so. Amos, final topic for you, and this was the main, I'd say, point of emphasis, I think, in your writing before Gaza blew up and before things escalated last week, Hezbollah. Hezbollah and the whole issue of the offshore natural gas fields. Uh, Israel is set to start drilling in a new natural gas field offshore in September, and Hezbollah was issuing all kinds of threats. It launched a, a few uh, surveillance drones at at this uh, offshore rig. Should we? Should we? I, I hate to put it this way. Should we be concerned about? Uh, uh, an escalation in northern Israel with Lebanon in September? Will Hezbollah really go to war over natural gas? I think we should uh, remain concerned. Um, the fact that our attention span is so short by now means that nothing was written about Hezbollah and the situation in the Mediterranean uh, this week because we were all focused on Gaza. Um, the, the American negotiator, uh, Amos Hochstein, was here last week after visiting Beirut, and he seemed slightly more optimistic. It turns that the it turns out that the Lebanese government is perhaps more willing to reach some kind of a compromise, and we already know that Israel is willing to make concessions. It's it's about the exact place where you uh, draw the border between uh, Israeli waters and Lebanese waters, and this is extremely important because. Uh, Israel has already, of course, uh, discovered gas there and is searching and, and producing gas from the Mediterranean, while the Lebanese haven't even started yet. And Lebanon needs this very urgently because it's in the worst economic condition in, in its history. Now, um, Nasrallah took advantage of the situation about a month ago and began threatening Israel. One theory is that it's mostly about uh, looking for credit. He wants to be seen inside the domestic uh, political arena in Lebanon as somebody who uh, forced Israelis into a compromise, which would mean more gas and more money for the poor Lebanese. Um, others are saying, no, this is more dangerous, and maybe uh, he's actually playing with fire, um, and fire could break out, uh, that you could reach by uh, sort of a miscalculation, both sides would reach Lebanon free and next uh, Lebanon war without intentionally meaning to, to go there. But this is the way it goes. Uh, so this has become very, very dangerous. The Israelis are very concerned. Uh, we have the Americans being slightly more optimistic. The deadline is September. I think by the end of September, Israel is um, um, about to begin operating in um, um, a field, a gas field called Karish, Shark. And there were threats being made directly by Nasrallah. He even sent uh, three, four uh, different uh, drones. UAVs were sent close to the um, um, drilling area, and Israel shot down all those um, UAVs. Um, I, I hope that this doesn't get... Um, you know, that this doesn't get into a full-scale escalation. And I think there's a reason to hope that Nasrallah is still um, carrying the scars of 2006 
and wouldn't like to risk this uh, as far as it goes. Uh, but yet nothing is stable here. I think when we look at the situation at large, uh, this long, hot summer, then dangers are on the horizon, whether it's the West Bank or Gaza that we've mentioned, and Lebanon as well. And to some extent, to some extent Iran as well, because of this ongoing um, discussion over the the new nuclear agreement, we still can't read what exactly uh, the Iranian intentions are. This is, as usual in the Middle East, a very delicate summer. Yes, uh, very delicate summer in a very delicate region. Um, final question for you, almost before I let you go. Uh, let's start from where we began. Uh, you've covered... I guess, countless and endless rounds uh, between Israel and Gaza and other escalations uh, in this part of the world. What goes through your mind when you get the alerts that Israel is striking Gaza again and that likely Islamic Jihad or any other group are going to start launching rockets into Israel? Are you, are you angry that it came to this? Are you looking more at, okay, I need to, uh, I need to explain this to both my readers and I guess my friends and family that are also asking why is this happening now? Uh, you know, what, what, what goes through your mind every time uh, things heat up here and, and you have to work as, as do, as do I. And uh, not a lot, actually. I think by now we got used to it, uh, sadly, and there's no anger anymore. And I can't really blame the Israeli government so much when it comes to Gaza. The, the West Bank is something different, but uh, you know, I don't want to sound too much as a, as Barak guy uh, working for the Israeli government. But in the end, I can't avoid the fact that uh, right-wing Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, for his reasons, all of them not necessarily the right reasons, decided to disengage from the Gaza Strip and decided to uh, move forcefully 9,000 Israeli settlers who lived there in 2005. Not that we, you know, uh, it doesn't mean that we don't have any responsibility towards Gaza anymore, but it's a shared responsibility with the Palestinians and with the Egyptians. And at least we made the attempt to remove some of the pressure or the friction by moving those settlers out. I still think that that was the right thing to do in, uh, in 2005. So unlike the situation in the West Bank, I'm less critical of the Israeli governments. I, I have my doubts about some of the policies and so on, but I can't say, okay, it's all our fault or, uh, uh, well, we should have reached peace a long time ago. The other side, you know, we have to mention that it's Hamas and Hamas isn't willing to recognize the Jewish state in any way. It's, much, it's a much tougher enemy than the, than the PLO ideologically. Uh, so it's frustrating. It's sad. It's always sad to hear that people are killed on on both sides. And I don't, I don't like, I don't enjoy wars or covering, even short time military operations in in any ways, in any way. But um, again, I, it's unfortunately it's part of the reality here. And what I'm mostly concerned about, apart from the safety of my my family members and so on, is how to explain the situation and how to avoid all those. Uh, PR uh, maneuvers uh, being made at me by by both sides. How to try and describe the the picture as clearly as possible without sentiments and without being misled by uh, conspiracy theorists on the one hand or um, spin doctors on the other. Yes, uh, and I think I speak for many people when I say uh, you do a good job uh, walking walking that line. Um, Amos, as I think you and I both wrote in recent days. Uh, and sadly, at that, uh, until the next round, 
between Israel and Gaza, uh, more likely than not. Uh, but thank you so much for taking the time today to explain uh, this latest round. Thank you. Okay, that was Amos Harel. Many thanks to him, as always, for his generous time. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening. 